Several years ago, when in college, Ken Davis had to prepare a lesson for his speech class. And he knew he was going to be graded on his creativity and his ability to drive a point home in a memorable way. So he decided that he was going to teach and speak on the law of the pendulum. Now, what is that? Well, the law of the pendulum states that a pendulum, once it is released, as it arcs back and forth, will always come to a point lower than its original release point. Due to friction, due to gravity, it will never go higher than where it was originally released from. So Ken, in his class, attached a three-foot piece of string to a bullet, I mean a blackboard with a thumbtack, and then, a, and then a t- uh, tied it to a toy top, pulled that top to one side and m- put a mark on the blackboard with a piece of chalk of where he was going to start, and then he released it. And as you would typically understand, the, the pendulum swung out, came back, and every time he came back, he would take a piece of chalk and mark where the, where the pendulum had ended up on that side. It took about a minute for the toy top to keep stop swinging and come to rest, and the chalk marks on the, bull, on the blackboard seemed to prove his theory. He looked at the class and said, do you all believe in the law of the pendulum? And everybody raised their hands, including the professor, who was at the back and began walking to the front, thinking that the speech was over, when in reality it had just begun. For Ken then took down from the steel ceiling beams in the center of the room a crude but functional pendulum. He had made one out of 250-pound weights attached to four strands of parachute cord. He then invited the professor to come up onto a table, sit in a chair with his head against the concrete wall of the classroom. He then brought the 200-pound, 250-pound pendulum and put it right up to the professor's nose. And then he said, what is the law of the pendulum? That if I release this, as it arcs across the room and come back, it will stop at a point short of where I released it. So he looked at the professor and said, so your nose is not going to be in any danger. And he looked the professor in the eye and said, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And there was a long pause. Sweat beads began to appear on the professor's head, and he kind of weakly nodded and answered, yes. Ken released the pendulum. It made this swishing sound as it went across the room. It paused momentarily on that side and then began to come back towards the professor. Ken says this, I never saw a man move so fast in my life. The teacher literally dove off the table. (laughs) Ken walked around the still swinging pendulum and asked the class, does the teacher believe in the law of the pendulum? To which the classmates all shouted out, no. What we really believe is revealed at critical moments of decision. Do we as followers of Jesus Christ have an authentic, robust faith, or are we settling for a cheap knockoff that when push comes to shove, it takes a dive? Give your Bibles with you, open if you would, to Ruth chapter 3 as we continue our series. Because Ruth chapter 3 is going to answer that question I just posed, but it's not going to do it through a theoretical 
lecture about the subject of faith, but rather it's going to teach us something through a heart-pounding, palm-sweating drama of ordinary, normal, plain people putting their faith into action at critical moments. It's the classroom called life. And what they believe at critical moments of decision reveals everything. As we come to chapter 3, we need to understand that the stage lights are being slowly lowered down to a point where they're going to totally turn off. Most of the events in this chapter happen after sunset, but before sunrise, which means the mood, the tone of chapter 3 is one of darkness. It's one of secrecy. It's one of uncertainty. But the fascinating thing is that the light begins to, as the light begins to fade, the action begins to heat up. So watch what happens in verse 1 to verse 6 as dusk unfolds. We've got a Jewish mom with a plan. What's her plan? Well, she wants to provide long-term security for her daughter-in-law. Now, God has met their short-term needs, uh, the immediate needs, and we've seen this over the last couple of chapters, as Ruth every single day goes and gleans in the field. But that's not enough for Naomi. She's thinking about the future. She's thinking about the long term, and gleaning is not going to cut it. How will our family line survive? Well, her strategy is to get the ball rolling. Boaz has already been identified as one of the kinsman redeemers, one of those who can rescue them. Boaz has also revealed his godly character. So Naomi decides just to give him a little nudge. We read about it starting at the last part of verse 2. What does Naomi say to Ruth? Well, Boaz is winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Okay, how many here are parents of uh, young single adults? Anybody here got young single adults in your family? Okay, how many of you would say this is a good dating strategy for them? I don't think so. I mean, suggesting this risky course of action reveals a lot about the degree of trust Naomi had in Ruth, but it also reveals she had a great deal of trust based on what she knew about Boaz. And Ruth, too, reveals her faith. Look at verse 5 and verse 6 as it describes her obedience. So Ruth replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. At this point in the story, the beauty of the sunset vanishes and darkness descends, starting about verse 7. Let me describe the scene for you here. A threshing floor is a large, flat rock area or hard-packed dirt area where the harvested stalks of grain from the day are brought from the field in order to separate the, the kernels of grain from the rest of the stalk, which is called the chaff. Now, a threshing floor is usually situated on a high ridge 
or on top of a mountain area to take advantage of the evening winds that would begin to blow as the temperature drops. Now, during the day, the stalks are brought from the field. They're laid out on this, th uh, this threshing floor flat, and then an oxen was, would be walked over the top of all of this, mashing the stalks down. Then early in the evening, when the temperatures have cooled and it's a little easier to do this kind of work, workers would come with wooden pitchforks stick, and stick it underneath this organic mess and toss it up lightly in the air. Now, we've got a wind blowing, so what the wind would do would blow the lighter chaff to one side, but the grain is heavier and it would just fall straight down. So as you kept threshing or yeah, on the threshing floor, throwing this stuff up in the air, as soon you would have a pile of light-colored chaff, and then right in front of you, you would have a dark pile of grain. Now, the, remember, the social tone at threshing time is one of celebration. The harvest has come in. So here's the reward for all the heavy months of, of labor that you've put in. It would be especially true in this setting because, as we remember from chapter 1, there's been a long famine going on in Bethlehem. Now, threshing is also back-breaking work. So starting in verse 7, Boaz has been working, and after now a good meal and some good drink, he goes and lays down on the green pile. Now, not, this is not only comfortable, it's kind of like trying to go to sleep in a beanbag chair, but also puts him in a position to guard his grain from theft in the middle of the night. Ruth is watching all of this. Remember, she's been told to wait. She watches all this, and after he falls asleep, she comes and does as she was instructed. She lifts up the corner of his cloak that he's sleeping under and lies down at his feet. Look at how verse 8 and verse 9 describe this for us. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and then Ruth came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Watch the humor in this. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. <laughs> there is something incredibly powerful in that exchange, uh, that conversation that just happened there. Look at what Ruth says. She asks Boaz to spread his wings over her. What she's doing is using the exact same words Boaz used in chapter 2 when he complimented her as being a woman who came to seek refuge under the wings of God. So there's a play of words going on here. Because the Hebrew word for wings is the same Hebrew word used to describe the corner of a garment. So in effect, what Ruth is saying to Boaz is, you've identified, Boaz, that I have, I've come and sought refuge under God's wings. Now, can I find refuge under your wings as a kinsman redeemer? Will you put yourself in the place of allowing God to care for me through you? And so to that request, what does Boaz say? He says, count on it. Look at verse 10. His response is, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. 
You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. (laughs) Wow. He will do. He will act. He will do what God asks a kinsman redeemer to do for someone in the family who needs rescue. So Ruth lays back down at his feet. And notice what happens as dawn begins to approach, starting at verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Boaz said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So nothing immoral, nothing inappropriate happened between the two of them that night. But to avoid even the appearance of anything like that, Ruth prepares to go home very, very early. But Boaz, as Ruth begins to leave, wants to send a message to the mother-in-law, to Naomi. Look at verse 15. He says, bring your garment that you're wearing and hold it out. And so she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her. Okay, what's the message? Well, keep reading. Boaz said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, and said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Ooh, empty-handed. Where have we seen that before? The word empty. That's how Naomi described herself back in, what, chapter 1 and verse 21? I went away full, but now I've come back to Bethlehem empty. See, Boaz has picked up on that. He's heard that. He is now sending a message to Naomi. Naomi, count on me. You will no longer be empty. And so as the eastern sky here, as we get to the end of chapter 3, begins to show some light, you know, we could easily assume, just like last week, that this whole drama is simply between Ruth and Boaz. Except for how verse 18 starts. What does it say to us? Well, Naomi, in speaking to Ruth, says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. Ooh, see that phrase, how the matter turns out? That's the same Hebrew phrase we saw last week in chapter 2 and verse 3, that Hebrew phrase that describes how the hand of God is at work behind the scenes. Again, remember, this is dark night. A darkness when it's nearly impossible to see clearly and understand anything. And yet at this very time, God has clearly been moving to show his loyal love to his people. So Naomi and Ruth, chapter 3 ends with them waiting to see what will happen. So let's do the same thing. Let's kind of hit the pause button here and let's just kind of consider what just happened. So sure, the pain, the agony, the heartache of these early chapters is now beginning to dissolve away. But what these verses vividly show us is a powerful truth in the way these characters are acting. They're portraying for us that robust faith decisions are the trigger points that transform our stories. Again, there's this obvious 
interplay and fascinating interplay going on between the characters who are in the spotlight, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, but it's also more fascinating what the sovereign God is doing who is remaining in the shadows. And as I mentioned last week, don't we all wish it would be different? We would like to see God move in our lives by an awesome display of his power. We would love to see God enter into the needs of the journey that we are currently in with a miracle that's so impressive that it would singe the eyebrows of anybody close by that's watching it. And yet, is there any greater miracle than when average, normal people are willing to exercise faith at critical moments of decision because they're convinced of who God is and what God wants. And God, God absolutely loves to see us exercise faith like that. And when those times occur and we choose to exercise faith, just even in the middle of our routines, they become trigger points that then transform our story from being ordinary and common into being very uncommon. Because this is where and this is how our story starts getting blended into God's larger story. And that's where we begin to see the impact of this chapter. The impact of this chapter is that we get to see displayed in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz authentic, robust faith. And what they model for us is a quality of faith that we can follow as we engage in our routines that go from Monday to Saturday. And so the events of this chapter give us at least three characteristics of a robust faith. And identifying these characteristics is really important because it will help us understand whether or not our faith is genuine or if it's a cheap imitation. It'll help us understand whether or not we've got something that's authentic or whether it is a shallow facade. So let's look at these three characteristics. First, notice how this part of the overall story reveals that a robust or authentic faith is characterized by an initiative that probes. An initiative that probes. It starts with Naomi, really. Naomi is exercising at the start of chapter 3 faith that's taking initiative to nudge Boaz into action. So a robust faith will, in the right way, at the right time, take initiative. And this is important to clearly understand because it's true that some people see Exercising faith is more like just kind of sitting on their hands. Um, that faith is choosing to be passive. Folks, if that was true, then rigor mortis is the best example of faith we can see. But then there are people that go to the other extreme. They go to the extreme and believe that exercising faith means going out there and making life happen. They've got this kind of aggressive pull yourself up by your own bootstrap mentality and just go get her done. Those are kind of the extremes. And yet I really believe 
what Jesus says to us in Luke chapter 11 and verse 9 is really helpful here. Remember, uh, in talking to us, he, he says something that is very common to us. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. But did you notice he didn't say demand, manipulate, or, or kick the door in? Those verbs, ask, seek, knock, have that nudging, probing quality to them. And that's what we see here in Naomi at the start of verse 3, or here all in chapter 3. She does not confront Boaz in the city square and wag her finger in his face. You don't see Naomi sending him a blistering letter or email reminding him of what Leviticus 25 says about how a kinsman redeemer is supposed to act. No. Rather, what we see is her giving a gentle nudge, a probing initiative to see what God might do. That's why it's important to keep Hebrews 11:6 in mind. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. A robust faith is first of all characterized by that genuine quality of an initiative that probes. But there's a second characteristic in this passage. Notice that a, that a robust faith has an integrity that protects. So Naomi's plan of sending Ruth to the threshing floor, oh, was that full of vulnerability? That was full of potential humility? Because what's the risk here? Well, Boaz could take advantage of her. Again, remember, it's nighttime. The lights are out. The threshing floor, it is in a isolated location. It's not in the city. Ruth's act could have been misunderstood. So Boaz, on one hand, could have done anything that he would have liked to her, or in the privacy of that setting, he could have humiliated her. He could have said something like this. What do you mean by approaching me like this? Just because I allowed you to glean in my fields doesn't mean you're anything but Moab scum. Picking up leftovers in the field is your position in life. Get away from me and get off my threshing floor. That could have happened. But authentic faith? Authentic faith is revealed when no one's watching by an integrity that protects. Again, remember, integrity is what I do when no one will ever no. And Boaz is presented with that kind of an opportunity to do whatever he would want and no one would see, no one would ever know, and yet his decision at this moment speaks volumes. By the way, what about us? What is revealed about our choices in those times when no one will ever know? Those threshing floor times 
when it's dark, when we're alone, when others can't see. At those times, what do I watch on TV? What do I pull out of the refrigerator? What do I read? How do I spend my money? Where do I go surf on the internet? In Long Beach, California, a man stopped into a fast food restaurant and picked up a couple of chicken dinners to share with meat. But once they got to their picnic site, the two of them, in opening up their sacks, recognized they weren't given any chicken at all, but rather inside was $800 in cash. Uh, the young woman at the counter had inadvertently grabbed the wrong bags and given them the, the proceeds of the day instead of their chicken dinners. Well, the guy put the money back in the bag and got back in his car and drove back to the, to the restaurant. And you can imagine by this time, the manager was frantic. Uh, the guy with the bag of money asked to speak to the manager and said, I want you to know that I came here, here to get a couple of chicken dinners, but I ended up with your money. And here, take it. Well, the manager was thrilled to death. He said, wow, this is great. Wait here. I want to call the TV station and get some cameras down here. I'm going to have your picture on the evening news. I have never, ever met someone so honest as you. To which the man said, oh, no, 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 don't do that. And then he leaned in and whispered in the manager's ear and said, you see, the woman I'm with is somebody else's wife. Integrity that protects. An initiative that probes. Let's look at one more quality of a, of a robust faith that we see in this passage, and that is it will be an instrument that provides. It's hard to miss that God is going to be taking care of Ruth through Boaz. It'll unfold for us even more in these next couple of uh, sermons together, time Sundays together. But did you notice it would never have happened if Boaz had not realized this was what God wanted him to do? But you've got to remember, think about all of this from Boaz's perspective. He's obviously older. Yes, he's wealthy, which means that if he had wanted to get married, he would have had plenty of opportunity and his pick of women earlier in his life. Ruth, on the other hand, is not even Jewish. He is a respected and influential, influential man in the community. What does he need a wife for? He is now a comfortably settled bachelor. Getting involved in all this is going to totally upset his whole life. Yet Boaz starts the process, and we'll see as this continues, he willingly steps up to be the kinsman redeemer. He is in a position both biblically and financially to act. So what we're going to notice about this guy is as he has received kindness, loyal love from God, he's going to pass it on. Now, there is more going on in Boaz's heart that motivates him that we know yet, but you're going to have to wait until the last Sunday of the sermon series with me to find out what else is really going on inside there. So, just going to have to wait on that. But this quality of robust faith, being an instrument that provides, is a breath of fresh air in our entitled, consumer-oriented, what's-in-it-for-me culture. 
God wants to use every one of us to help those in need. Already this morning, you've already either seen because you came to the lobby or you heard through the announcements up here, several opportunities already to do that. You can go grab an Operation Christmas Child box and help a child in poverty have the kind of Christmas they've never ever had before in their life. Or you can consider helping to be part of DEL Together where we're going to open up our facilities to help the stress levels in this community with so many families because of distance learning having to take place and have some of our, these students come in here and be in a safe environment with people like us who can care for them, help them with their homework, or just be around to talk to and take the pressure off the community in so many ways. Will we be those who will be instruments that provide for the needs of others. By the way, turn, if you would, into the New Testament and look at something. Look at something with me in 2 Corinthians 9. God allows us to have an abundance. Why? Well, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And just look at a couple of verses, starting at verse 10. Listen to what Paul says to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10 begins, Paul says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower, kind of reminds us of what's going on in the book of Ruth, doesn't it? And bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. Why? What's the next word? For sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way, which then through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. Watch verse 13. By their approval of this service, in other words, how we're providing, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Do you see it? Do you see that as I let God's love be expressed through me in meeting the needs of others, it proves the authenticity of my faith. But you see, biblical passages like this on the subject of just giving away who we are and what we have to meet the needs of others, goes so counter to the, to the American culture that indoctrinates us into thinking that the more I have, the more I can just spend on myself. Yet every believer, every follower of Christ has got to ask the question, how much is enough? That's why I, I love the way Dave Ramsey, you know, Financial Peace University guy, in his teaching on the subject of handling our money, he makes the comment, we buy things we don't need, with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. <laughs> that is so often what's happening around us. So is the way I'm choosing to use my money, the way I'm using my time, the, use, the way I'm using my finances, or my giftedness, my, my, my energy, is there an act there of trying to impress others? Am I trying to validate something inside me? Or does it reveal that I've got a robust faith 
and sees how I can be an instrument that provides for others in need. That's why I love what Winston Churchill once said. He said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Robust faith decisions are the trigger points that transform the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and they will do the same for us. As we choose by faith to take initiative that probes, have integrity that protects, and be an instrument that provides. Do I have that kind of robust faith? Do I want to have that kind of robust faith? Someone has made the observation, or the comment, I should say. They said, I would recommend that you either believe God up to the hilt or just do not believe at all. Believe this book, every letter of it, or else reject it. There really is no logical place to stand between the two. A faith that kind of paddles around the edge of the water is a poor faith. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that dives in. 